Well, in his teaching on prayer, Jesus says, pray, Father, your kingdom come and your will be done. And so this is, this is the prayer of his church, of his people through all time. Father, your kingdom come. And this morning we're launching into our new Sunday morning series on the kingdom of God, and we're calling it Kingdom Come. And we go into that with a sense of excitement and expectancy as we pray for God's kingdom to come in our hearts, in our congregation, in our city, and in our nation. And over the next uh, few weeks, we'll be looking at uh, in Matthew's gospel. And Matthew's gospel really helps us to focus in on the kingdom of God and to understand the difference that he wants to make in the world as his kingdom comes and as well is done here on earth as it is in heaven. Now, Gareth hasn't been able to be with us this morning. He's off on annual leave and he's with his family. And uh, he'll be back in, uh, at the helm again tomorrow. We'll be doing a little handover and we've session tomorrow night. Um, but to help us launch our series uh, today, uh, as I might say, here's a wee video that we made earlier. Uh, and it's a little outside broadcast. So here's one we made earlier. Hey, it's Gareth, Minister at Orangefield Presbyterian Church. It's great to see you all. I'm standing up here on top of Orangefield Church, looking over the city. It's four days before Christmas, four days before hope flooded the world, four days before Emmanuel and God's kingdom coming amongst us. And I'm here to tell you about our new teaching series that we're launching now in January. I wonder as you look over the city, what do you see? What do you feel? Do you see reconciliation and hope and a peace process that's working? Or do you see division and the legacy of the trouble still affecting people's hearts and the communities we live in? As you look over the city, do you see families and communities that are thriving and enriched? Or do you see brokenness and pain and a breakdown in what were once traditional family values? Do you see governments that are seeking to find a way to work together and lead us into a future? Or do you see individuals vying for power? and unwilling to compromise and step into the shared future we dream of and pray for? Do you see enterprise and industry and an entrepreneurial spirit that seeks to make a new Northern Ireland? Or do you see unemployment and poverty and people struggling to get by? I guess my question is, as you look over our city, as you pray over our city, what does it look like for God's kingdom to come in this time and in this place in 2019. As you look over the city and pray the prayer that Jesus gave us, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that kind of revival look like today? Because whatever it looks like out here, it needs to start in here, in my heart, and in your heart, in our experience with God, in our prayers to God. And I want to invite you to come on a journey with us 
as we pray that prayer and as we step into this series of Kingdom Come. Thank you. I'm sort of waiting on him to come abseiling in through one of the windows there <laughs> and do the Bible reading for me. Have you seen our Bible reading yet? Uh, we're turning to Matthew chapter 1, and uh, it's the genealogy of Jesus, and it's on page 965 if you would like to follow along in a church Bible, and uh, or maybe have it up on your phone or whatever, but it'd be really helpful if you had this open, uh, and if you bear with me while I read it, and uh, as another minister friend of mine said, there are some belters in there, um, but if you bear with me while I read this, because I think we will find that there is some real uh, gems in here as we unpack it a little bit later uh, in a moment. So uh, we're, we're reading from Matthew chapter 1 and verses 1 to 17, <clears throat> the genealogy of Jesus. This is God's Word. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amenadab. Amenadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltel, Sheltel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, Abiud, the father of Elikim, Elikim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Eliud, Eliud, the father of Eliezer. Eliezer, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Well, of course, that's the bit we always skip over, isn't it? Uh, that's the bit we always leave out whenever we're telling the Christmas story, whenever we come to read Matthew's gospel. We start at Matthew 1, verse 17 generally, don't we? Uh, you know, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. But actually, Matthew would say to us, he would say, whoa, whoa, not so fast. Not so fast. Now, genealogies are, uh, and seeking our ancestry, it's a very common activity at the minute. I believe it's the second most Google-searched thing, is looking for our ancestors, checking our family trees. Uh, and I believe there are some people frantically checking at the moment to see if they are in any way related to a certain couple from Moira. <laughs> Don't think I am. Uh, I once turned off at the Moira roundabout. 
I wonder, does that qualify me for a million? I would only want it, of course, to pay off our building fund. You understand? But if I was writing a gospel, this is not really where I would start. I wouldn't start like this. So, so, so why does Matthew start his gospel with a list of pretty unpronounceable names? Well, as I've been thinking about this and praying about it and doing a little research this past week or so, I've realized that this is more than just a list of names. This is also a story. It's a story. And Matthew actually hasn't done too bad in covering the whole Old Testament in 15 verses. But this is a story. This is a real story of real people in real times and in a real world. This is a true story of people and places and happenings and events. And and it's a story that I believe does three things. It does three things. The first thing that this genealogy does for us is this. It establishes Jesus' royal credentials. As we sang our carols over Christmas and we joined with the herald angels in proclaiming and giving glory to the newborn king. And in Matthew's gospel, before we get to the angels, before we get to the Bethlehem and the manger and the shepherds and the wise men, before we get there, we get here. And what we need to get is that here, this is all about this king. This is all about the king that the wise men came to worship. And in this genealogy, in, in, in genealogy in this, in this family tree, Matthew bookends all the names in it by starting with Christ and finishing with Christ and pointing out that everything in between is about Jesus the King. And it proves that he is the King. You see, if someone claims the, the right to a throne, they must first of all prove their royal lineage. That they, ha- that they have a legitimate claim to the throne. And verse 6 tells us here that Jesus is a descendant of King David. A descendant of King David. You see, when an ambassador is appointed to go and represent their country in another country, before, they, before that government, they must come and, and bring their credentials. They must present their credentials to prove that they are who they say they are and that they have the authority to do what they're going to do. To do what they've been sent to do. And you see, here in these opening verses of the gospel, of his gospel, Matthew presents us with Jesus' credentials as God's appointed king. Establishing one's credentials was a quite a common thing to do in those days. The, the famous Jewish historian Josephus, he does the same at the start of his biography. He sets out who he is so that he's, he's shown to be qualified to speak on what he talks about. The Apostle Paul does something similar as well. In, in Philippians, he, he writes that he was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, etc., etc. And whilst we know that Jesus was, was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, this family tree importantly sets out Jesus' human side of his genealogy. And so as we look at this child in the manger, Matthew wants us to see Jesus' heritage. Matthew wants his first Jewish readers to know that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham, so he's a true Jew. That he's a descendant of King David, so he's a true king. And on this day, today, the 6th of January, which is marked by much of the church around the world as the Feast of the Epiphany, we remember that Jesus was revealed to those non-Jewish kings, those wise men, revealed to them as the one who is not just the king of the Jews, but the king of all people, the king of kings. And what a king he is. 
I, I once heard a, a, an African-American preacher, Reverend Shadrach Lockridge, Shadrach Lockridge, and he was speaking from Scripture on Jesus. And he describes Jesus much better and much more poetically than I ever could. So just let me, let me uh, just share something of what the Reverend Lockridge says. He says this, The Bible says my king is a seven-way king. He is the king of the Jews, that's a racial king. He is the king of Israel, that's a national king. He is the king of righteousness. He is the king of the ages. He is the king of heaven. He is the king of glory. He is the king of kings, that's my king. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-reaching telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoreless supplies. No barrier can hinder his blessing. He is everlastingly strong. He is entirely sincere. He is eternally steadfast. He is empirically powerful. He is impartially merciful. He is the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of the world. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He is august and unique. He is unparalleled and unprecedented. He is the loftiest ideal of literature. He is the highest personality of philosophy. He is the miracle of the ages. He sympathizes and he saves. He strategizes and he sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the leper. He forgives the sinner. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged and he rewards the diligent. That's my king. Lockridge goes on. He is the king of knowledge. He is the wellspring of wisdom. He is the doorway to deliverance. He is the pathway to peace. He is the roadway to righteousness. He is the highway to holiness and the gateway to glory. His office is manifold. His promise is true. His, ma- his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. But he's indescribable. He is incomprehensible. He is inconvincible. He is irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind and you can't get him off your hands. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't fault him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. And his is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And how long is that? Forever and ever and ever and ever. And after all the forevers, amen and amen. That's my king. To the baker, he is the bread of life. To the jeweler, he is riches untold. To the florist, he is the rose of Sharon. To the Christian, he is Lord and Savior. And to the sinner, he is the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world. If you're lonely this morning, he wants to be your friend. If you're lost today, he wants to guide you. If you're hurt, he wants to be your physician. He wants to touch your life and to change it for all eternity. And Lockridge concludes, that's my king. I wonder, do you know him? Folks, this is our king. This is our king. And and, and let's resolve to get to know him. To get to know him today and to get to know him better in the days and in the year ahead. You see, Matthew in setting out, his start of his gospel is setting out to show us Jesus' credentials. He is setting out Jesus' credentials as God's anointed king. But he's also setting out God's 
credentials as the promise-keeping God. Jesus' credentials as king, God's credentials as the promise-keeping God. And Matthew does this, deliberately sets out his genealogy in three sections. Firstly, from Abraham to King David, then King David to the exile, and then thirdly, from the exile to Jesus. And he does this to show us that God is the kind of faithful, promise-keeping God who is with us every step of all the ups and downs of the journey. You see, the story of King Jesus, it starts way before Christmas, way before Bethlehem, way back before we, what we think of as the Christmas story. Matthew takes us right back to Abraham, way back to the very first book of the Bible, back to the book of Genesis. And back to that promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 that he would be the father of a great nation. Thousands of years before the birth of Christ promised Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And you see, when Abraham received this promise, he was old. And he was without any children. And yet how is Matthew able to start his genealogy? Yep. Abraham was the father of Isaac. You see, by God's grace, Abraham's family begins, and from that family, God promised to bless all people. Not just to bless Abraham and his family, but to bless all people, to bless us, to bless you, to bless me through Abraham. And so Abraham's family continues down through the the, the years, and in verse 6, we come then to King David. And God promised David that a ruler would come from his family, a ruler who would be a king, a king who would reign forever, a king who would bring about that blessing for all people promised to Abraham. In 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, verses 12 to 14, God promises David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so this family of of Abraham, this family of David, it continues, the story continues. But God's people drift away. God's people drift away from him. They stopped trusting him, and they turned away from him. And his judgment came upon them. And in 586 BC, God's people were attacked by their enemies, the Babylonians, And they were carried away into exile in Babylon. And as they languished there in exile, away from Jerusalem, away from their promised land, it looked like God's promise had been broken. But no. No, for Matthew shows us that the list of names goes on. The list of names goes on. The list continues. And because it does, it shows us that God's promise and God's faithfulness continues as well. Even though the people had turned away from God, God hadn't turned away from them. There is still the promise of the coming king. God still remains faithful to his word. And so then we come in the fullness of time. We come to the end of the list. To the Christ, the promised king, the promised blessing to all nations. You see, there may have been times when his people had forgotten God, but God had never, ever ever forgotten his people. God had never forgotten his promise. The promise of blessing, the promise of a king, the promise of a kingdom. 
a promise that God had made and kept generation after generation, and which is now fulfilled in the birth of King Jesus and the ushering in of his kingdom of blessing for all people as they trust in him. So this is a story that weaves human and divine because this is not just the story of a promise-keeping God, but it's also the story of a very real human family. And because this is the story of a real human family with all its weaknesses and sins and feelings, the third and final thing that this genealogy does for us this morning is this. It shows us God's grace. It establishes Jesus' royal credentials. It demonstrates God's faithfulness, and it shows us God's grace. You see, if we put together our family tree, wouldn't we be so tempted to just brush out the, the unsavory bits? To, 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 you know, to brush out the dodgy characters and the skeletons in the closet? To leave out the people that we sort of wished other people didn't know about? But the Bible doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. In Jesus' family tree, nothing is left out. No one is excluded. Everyone is in there. And one of the ways we see this, for instance, is is in the way Matthew records the names of several women. Now, Jewish genealogies in those days would not normally have included women. Family trees would normally be traced down exclusively through the male line. But here we see the intrinsic value that God puts on all people, men and women alike. But the story, the story represented by all these men and women also speak of brokenness and and sinfulness of humanity and the mercy and grace of God. Verse 3, we see the names of Judah and Tamar. Both of them had been deceitful. Genesis 38 tells us that Judah and Judah had promised to give his son to Tamar as husband, but he didn't. And so in order to have a child, Tamar took things into her own, her own hands. She disguised herself as a prostitute, and Judah ended up sleeping with her. Both liars and adulterers. And here they are in the family tree of Jesus. No wonder they call him the Redeemer. Then in verse 5, we find Rahab and Ruth, both Gentile women, not from a Jewish background. And that would have been scandalous enough. But we also know from the book of Joshua that Rahab was a prostitute from the city of Jericho. And then in verse 6, we see Bathsheba. And she's simply called here, she's called Uriah's wife. Even good King David was a sinner. He saw Uriah's wife and he wanted her for himself and he slept with her. And he committed adultery. And then he had Uriah killed. We could go on and on through this family tree and see that at times, folks, from a human point of view, it's just not a pretty picture. This is an often difficult story. Full of broken people. Sinful people. Jews and Gentiles. Men and women. Prostitutes and murderers. Deceivers and liars. But this is a real story. Full of real people. And you just wouldn't make this up, would you? And I read of one man who was from a Hindu background who was converted when he read this story and the realness of it just struck him. Because if somebody was going to make this up, you wouldn't write it like this. I wouldn't. But this is real, this is honest, this is true. 
And that struck this man. But because of all this story, because of all this warts and all, we see it's a real story, and if it's a real story, then we can believe it. And it's a story that includes all these sinners because God does. It's a story that includes all the sinners because that's how God shows all his grace. It's a genealogy that's full of sinful people and full of the grace of God. You see, it's a story that shows that God doesn't stay aloof out there somewhere. No, he comes down into the brokenness, into the mess, into the darkness, into the sinfulness of the world. And he comes down and he writes sinful people into his story, into his kingdom, as his kingdom comes. And it gives us hope, doesn't it? It gives us hope. Because this is a story of grace, and in his amazing grace, God invites us. He invites you and me. God invites us into his story, into his family, into his kingdom. Just as I finish, we've just been celebrating Christmas. And one of the most popular readings for Christmas is from John chapter 1. And in there it tells us of Jesus coming into the world, and it tells us in verse 12, it says this, To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. God so graciously invites us by believing in Jesus to be part of his family and part of his kingdom. And if that seems to be too, too good to be true, well, just look again at the sort of people that Jesus has in his family tree. If Jesus has room for people like these, then he has room for people like you and me. That's why he came. That's why he came. To bring us into his family, into his kingdom, undeserving as we are. Folks, that first Christmas, there was no room in the inn. No room in the world for God. But God has room. God has room. God has room for the sinful and the broken. God has room for those who struggle and for those who have failed. God has room for those with a record and those with a past. Room for those with regrets and those with longings. Room for those simply looking somewhere to belong. God has room in his family, room in his kingdom, room for you and room for me. And so as he graciously invites us this morning, as we go into 2019, he graciously invites us to make his story our story, to make his family our family, and to make his king our king. Shall we pray together for a moment? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you knew what you were doing when you placed this genealogy of your son at the start of the New Testament. Father, we thank you that through it you established King Jesus' royal credentials, that through it you demonstrate your faithfulness and through it you show us your grace. 
as you move amongst us here and now by the power of your Spirit. Help us to respond to what you've been saying to us from your Word. Help us to trust in King Jesus afresh today, or perhaps even for the first time, as your kingdom comes in our lives, as your kingdom comes in our congregation, and as your kingdom comes in our city. Please fill us with your Spirit and your Word, your grace and your truth, as we answer the call of the kingdom to follow and to serve King Jesus throughout this new year and beyond. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.